Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Let me begin by saying thank you for your faithful service this semester here in chapel. Uh, I know it honors the Lord, and it also blesses and encourages your faculty here uh, because it demonstrates your love for God's Word and for the gathering of God's people when we can come together for worship. Uh, This morning, our text is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. The title of the message is, The Promise of the Birth of the Greatest Man Who Ever Lived. Now, when you hear that title and also the text, Luke 1, I'm sure your mind must race to the conclusion. Well, he is going to speak this morning about the birth of Jesus. However, that would be a a hasty and incorrect conclusion because the promised birth of the greatest man who ever lived is actually not about Jesus Christ, but rather about his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, before you brand me a false teacher and a heretic and an advocate of some revived John the Baptist cult, I would just direct your attention to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 9 through 11, where our Lord said this, speaking of John the Baptist, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, and he cites Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You see, John's birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth was supernatural, But it was also normal, uh, very much like the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 21. In contrast, Jesus' birth was both supernatural and supranormal. It was a virgin conception and a virgin birth brought about by the overshadowing and power of the Holy Spirit, as Luke chapter 1 verses 35 and 36 make very clear. You see, John was a great man, but he was just a man. Jesus was the God-man, the Son of God, deity wedded to human flesh, as John chapter 1 and verse 14 makes it very clear. That's why Jesus very precisely could say, among those born of women, the normal and natural way, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Now, John's birth is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. But the promise of his birth is given to us in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, which constitutes our text for this morning. And from these particular verses in Luke chapter 1, I simply want to note four truths that will accompany those who walk with God over a lifetime. Number one, those who walk with God may still experience disappointments. We see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife 
from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Herod the Great, king of Judea, reigned from 37 to 4 B.C., which is one of the reasons we know that Jesus was not born in A.D. 1, but was probably born around 5 or 4 B.C., shortly before the death of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was called the Great because he was a very gifted and talented man, a tremendous uh, individual politically. He always kind of landed on the right side of the equation, no matter who was reigning in Rome. Uh, he was also a, a, an unbelievable builder and built massive uh, uh, complexes throughout the land of Judea. But at the same time, he was paranoid, he was narcissistic, he was cruel. And he was murderous, even killing some of his own children as well as one of his wives. These were very, very dark days for the nation of Israel under the tyranny of Rome and its puppet king, Herod. But a new day was about to dawn. Luke records for us the events that would eventually lead to the birth of a man we know as John the Baptist. Zechariah was a priest and his wife was Elizabeth. And we learn from chapter 1 and verse 39 that they were simple country folks. They lived in the hills of Judea. And in contrast to the tyrant and megalomaniac known as Herod, they had lived a life of quiet and simple faithfulness to our God. Verse 6 again informs us they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, Luke doesn't want us to think that they were perfect. They weren't, but they were godly, and they were faithful. Indeed, I like to refer to them as great commandments people. They loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and they loved their neighbor as themselves. Not perfect, but godly and faithful. Furthermore, both of them came from a great heritage. Both of them were descendants from the priestly line of Aaron. And they would both have been very well named. Zechariah means remembered by God. Elizabeth means God is my oath or God promises. And I would encourage you to keep both of their names in mind as we walk through the story. I imagine that many of you in this room today have godly grandparents, uh, a grandfather, a grandmother that have walked with the Lord for a, a lifetime and perhaps now they're nearing the end uh, of their pilgrimage, the end of their journey, and yet still faithful to the Lord, walking blamelessly, loving the Lord Jesus and loving the things of God. Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth were aged and they were godly, but they did not have grandchildren because they did not even have children. Indeed, when you read verse 6, they walked righteously and blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You would think, well, they must have prospered in every conceivable way because of their faithfulness in the Lord. But verse 7 starts with the word but, but unexpectedly. Uh, you wouldn't plan on seeing this or thinking this would be the case. They had no child. Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were advanced in their years barren and old 
Not a very good combination for having children. And again, even in the days of Jesus, there was a kind of incipient prosperity gospel that if you're good and you are faithful and you walk in the commandments of the Lord, certainly you're going to be blessed. But that's not the case, is it? They were righteous but childless, blameless but barren, faithful but fruitless, dedicated to God, but I would also argue they were probably disappointed in God. In fact, we learn from verse 25 that Elizabeth says that God had been kind to her in allowing her to conceive because she was a reproach. The Christian Standard Bible says she was a disgrace among the people. And the fact of the matter is, many of us in this room, if not now, down the road, will continue to walk faithfully with the Lord. But things are going to happen that disappoint you. Things are going to happen that break your heart. Uh, at my stage in life now, I've prayed with and, and wept with many couples uh, that were incapable or unable to bear children. In some cases, they would even draw, I think, wrongly the conclusion or at least ask the question, what have I done? Uh, what did we do that God will not give us a child? What did we do uh, that God has not allowed us the blessing of children? And yet the answer would be, you've done nothing wrong. It is simply the purpose and the plan of God for your life. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London, preached a sermon entitled, A Happy Christian. And in that sermon, he said this, Those of the world bless God while he gives them plenty. But the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. And yes, those who walk with God may still experience disappointments. Number two, those who walk with God may still be surprised by his goodness and his grace. Verses 8 through 17 in our text describe what I call a once-in-a-lifetime event for the priest Zechariah. However, it's going to be far more amazing than he could have ever imagined. Verse 8 tells us, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Uh, Zechariah was a part of the division of Abijah. Uh, they rotated as to who would be allowed to go in and perform the various services that would take place in the temple. Uh, on this occasion, the assignment was to go in and burn incense. By the way, if you want to see the ordering of the priestly service, it's described in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 7 through 18, and Abijah is mentioned there in verse 10. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, there were 1,000 priests per division. 
And if that is the case in Zechariah's day, it's even more remarkable as verse 9 tells us that he was chosen by lot for the custom of entering into the temple and burning the incense. And yet we know it's not by accident, it's not by chance. It's divinely ordained by God. After all, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33 reminds us the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the man of God is in the house of God doing the work of God. And verse 10 tells us at the time, the people of God, the multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of of incense but then something totally unexpected occurs verse 11 and there appeared to him an angel of the lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense note note the specificity of the details given here and the bible says and this is not uh, surprising at all zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him there he is doing his once-in-a-lifetime service of burning incense in the temple. And suddenly, out of nowhere, as uh, James Edwards says, a holy, heavenly creature appears to the holy priest who's standing in a holy place and performing a holy sacrifice. Now, we will learn later in verse 19 that this particular angel is named Gabriel. Uh, the word Gabriel means God's mighty one, and he's mentioned a number of times in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 8, chapter 9, and here in Luke chapter 1 as well. In fact, there are only two angels in the Bible that are actually named for us. One is Gabriel, as we see here, and the other is the archangel. By the way, the Bible never says that Gabriel was an archangel. Uh, the one archangel who is named is the archangel Michael. And he appears in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12 and Jude 9 and also in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Gabriel, most often in the Bible, serves as a messenger angel. And here he delivers God's word to God's priest. And again, it's not surprising that he is troubled. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible says he was terrified. I, I like the message which paraphrases it. Zechariah was paralyzed with fear. Now, before we move on, uh, just a little angelology for those of us who love systematic theology. Angels are quite prominent uh, in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In fact, they occur in the Bible right at 300 times, and Luke of the four gospel writers is the one who loves angels the most. They are mentioned 30 times in Luke's gospel, more than Matthew, Mark, or John. Now, we need to make sure we understand something about angels. Angels are not cute, childlike beings sitting on a cloud strumming a harp with a silly smile on their face. That is not what an angel is. More to the point, uh, when children die, if they have not reached the age of accountability and rejected the Lord, I believe they go to heaven. But they do not become angels. Uh, angels are supernatural beings directly created by God. And they're not cute little childlike figures on a cloud strumming a harp, but rather they are powerful. And they are often very terrifying as the servants of Almighty God, which would explain why Zechariah was terrified. Well, I think he was terrified, first of all, because you can imagine you going into a place where you're the only one who's supposed to be there, and suddenly you turn and look to the right, and there's somebody standing there beside you. That would probably shake any of us up. 
But the fact that it was a mighty warrior of God no doubt caused him to fear all the more. But the angel has a very simple and a very direct message. And in his wonderful commentary on Luke, uh, my friend Thabiti Anyabwele basically says we can summarize what follows in seven simple statements. So I'm going to follow his direction. Number one. He begins in verse 13. Do not be afraid. It's a present imperative word of command in the present tense, which probably means stop being afraid. Uh, Stop fearing. Uh, God has sent me. You will discover that this God who has kept you and your wife barren all these years is still the God who is on your side. And Mr. Remember, he has remembered you. Secondly, Your prayer, now, some have speculated, well, the prayer was referring to the prayer he had uttered in the uh, temple there in the holy place, and uh, this was a prayer for the nation. That's possible, but I doubt it, because he says your prayer singular, and the statement that immediately follows it there in verse 13, I think, makes clear, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will call his name John now when had he prayed this prayer my suspicion is he had prayed this prayer many times but I also suspect he had prayed this prayer many 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 years ago I'm just speculating here it's not in the text but I can imagine that when uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth entered into their latter 40s the prayer for a child stopped and in their 50s there was no prayer for a child and in their 60s there was no prayer for a child and in their 70s there was no prayer for a child and if they're now in their 80s there's no prayer for a child they had not prayed this prayer for a long time yet I love the fact that in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8 when the Lord Jesus goes and takes the scroll from the hands of God the Father and the angels and the saints, the elders begin to fall down and worship. They come before him with bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. You know, sometimes God answers our prayer, but he waits a very long time before that answer comes. But God's timing is perfect. As my hero Adrian Rogers said, God is never early and God is never late. God is always right on time. And it is the right time because the forerunner has come to pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so he says, Mr. Remembered by God and Miss God promised, you're going to have a son and you will name him John, which means God is gracious. But thirdly, the son and his birth will be a source of joy and gladness and rejoicing for not just Zechariah and Elizabeth, But the text tells us in verse 14, for many, which I immediately think of, the many of the nations. And note how the word and uh, is used so carefully and prominently by Dr. Luke as he again continues to unfold the narrative for us. Let me read beginning at verse 14 down through verse 17 and give emphasis to that word. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he tells us that the birth of this son, John, will be a source of great joy and gladness and rejoicing, not just for mom and dad, but for many, for the nations. Next, he tells us he will be great before the Lord. In fact, quoting the words of Jesus, he'll be the greatest man has ever been born naturally. Fifthly, he will be totally dedicated to God. No wine, no strong drink, very much like the Nazarite vow uh, being taken in Numbers chapter 6. And don't miss this, he, he, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. There is indeed a human person in the womb of Elizabeth. Number six, he will usher in a spiritual revival in Israel that will be heart transforming as many turn to the Lord. Verse 16 and 17, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. For what purpose? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people who have been properly prepared. In other words, he will usher in a great revival in Israel that will be heart transforming for parents and, and children alike. In fact, verse 16 is what makes verse 17 possible. And again, he is quoting from Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, where living fathers and living children will have their hearts changed toward one another. And then finally, wrapping it all up in terms of his message, he will be faithful in fulfilling the word of the prophet Malachi coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so Zechariah has had the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the uh, temple and go into the holy place and burn incense, but oh, how the Lord has given him so much more than he could have ever hoped or imagined. And again, those who walk with God may experience disappointments, but those who walk with God may still be surprised even at the end of their life by his goodness and by his grace. Number three, those who walk with God may still have times when they struggle to believe. If you know me very well, you know that I love missionary biographies and have many missionary heroes. Uh, one that's at the top of my list is uh, Adoniram and Ann Judson. In fact, when I was in Bible college, uh, taking a class in missions, the first book I ever read in my life on missions was To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson, which is the story of the life of Adoniram Judson. Uh, Adoniram Judson went to what was then known as Burma. Uh, today it is known as Myanmar. I did a little research in preparation for this message, which I've never preached before, by the way, and I discovered that now missiologists count no less than 1.6 million Baptists in almost 5,000 churches in the country of Miramar. 1.6 million Baptists, 5,000 churches, all started by the faithfulness of Adoniram and Ann Judson. They trusted God, but even though they trusted God and obeyed God, their life was not without hardship and heartache. Judson himself would bury two wives. He would bury a number of children. 
And after being released from prison, Anne was pregnant and gave birth to their first baby girl, Maria. Short time thereafter, baby Maria and Anne would both die. And Judson, as a result of that, fell into serious, serious, serious depression. In fact, for many months, he ceased ministry altogether. And he did something very odd. He went out into the jungle and he dug a grave. And those who reported on his life said at first they thought he'd been eaten by tigers. But later they discovered him out there staring into this grave day after day after day after day. And on October the 24th, 1829, on the third anniversary of the death of Anne, he would write these words. Listen very carefully. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Now, this comes from one of the greatest missionaries, I believe, who's ever walked planet Earth. One more time, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Praise God, he would later find his Lord again. And he would continue till the day of his death evangelizing that country that today boasts of more than 1.6 million believers. Now, Zechariah's doubt was not as severe as Judson's, but his doubt was still very real. And this makes, uh, is made very clear in verse 18. Now, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? We might paraphrase it. How can this happen? Uh, with the emphasis being it can't. And in fact, let me make my argument for you. I'm an old man. And my wife, you know, I like the fact he's a little bit more tactful here. He doesn't say, I'm an old man and my wife's an old woman. No, he's a little nicer there. I'm an old man, but my wife, she's advanced in years. So we'll give him a little plug for at least his sensitivity there. So I just want to kind of reason with you, Mr. Angel. I'm old. She's advanced in years. We're so far past having the ability to have a child, I don't even know why we are having this conversation. Well, Gabriel responds, and even though the words are not really all that hard until you get to the end, this is a rebuke. It's a loving rebuke, but it is a rebuke nonetheless. Look at what he says there in verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. This is the first time he's mentioned, by the way, by name. I am Gabriel. I'm not only a mighty man, I stand in the presence of God. Furthermore, I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this euangelia, this, this message of, of good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's doubts, as I said a moment ago, were not as severe as Judson's, but they were real nonetheless. He basically questions the angel, how can these things possibly even occur? Warren Wiersbe, who for many years was a wonderful pastor of the Moody Church, as the author of the B-series, a commentary series I would commend to all of you, he summarizes the situation really well when he says, instead of looking to God by faith, the priest looked at himself and his wife and decided the birth of a son was indeed impossible. 
And in my notes, I've just simply written, he had not yet come to believe Luke 1, 37, where you see the Bible says, for nothing will be impossible with God. You see, Zechariah is like many of us in our lives. He needs to get his eyes off of his problem and back on the God who solves problems, the God who keeps his word. So the rebuke comes from the mighty one, Gabriel, and he informs him that because he has rejected the word of the Lord, he will receive what one commentator said, I love this phrase, he will receive a severe mercy, a severe mercy. And what is that severe mercy? He will be mute until John is born. In fact, he will not say a word until we get to chapter 1 and verse 64. And it again is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that the Lord, as Hebrews 12 tells us, does discipline those he loves. So verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Evidently, he stayed there much longer than was normally the case. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. Uh, we're, we're told that normally when the priest would come out, he would come down to the steps and he would utter the ironic blessing that you find in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 26. And the people would wait till he came out, knowing that things had been properly adjudicated, and then he would pronounce the ironic blessing, and then everyone would leave and go home. Well, they waited and they wondered, and they waited and they wondered, and finally he comes out and he can't talk. And they don't know exactly what to make of all of this, but they do know in verse 22 that uh, when he came out and was unable to speak, they realized that he must have seen a, a vision in the temple. So obviously they were at least drawing the conclusion that God must be up to something. And then almost anticlimactic, Luke ends this particular episode by simply saying, verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went home. And that's kind of it. His time came to an end, by the way, because he was now mute. Uh, he was disqualified for any further priestly service. And so again, we learn that even those who walk with God still may have times when they struggle to believe. But then finally, number four, those who walk with God will discover he keeps his word and blesses his children. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth, she conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. And she said, thus, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, my shame from among the people. Christian Standard Version says that Elizabeth kept herself in seclusion. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it. She went off by herself for five months relishing her pregnancy. You see, verse 25 expresses her amazement and thanksgiving for God's grace and for God's faithfulness. The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, when he looked on me with favor. And you see, we learn at the end of the story what we know of every story in the Bible. God is the hero. God is the hero. God did it. He did it all. 
And to God be the glory for great things he has done in the life of Zechariah and also Elizabeth. John Piper captures well, I think, the essence of Luke 1 and really Luke 2 as well, the birth of Jesus, when he says this, and I quote, sometimes people wonder where phrases like God-saturated, God-besotted, God-centered come from. They come from Bible stories like this. This story is mainly about God. God is the main actor in this story. He's central. He's dominant. He is all-persuasive. And if you stretch your view out over the whole gospel, it's still true. Matthew uses the words God and Lord 59 times. Luke, 194 times. Three times as often, and the two gospels are almost identical in length. Three times more often than Mark. 87 times more often than John. Most excellent Theophilus alluding back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here is the first locked down, unshakable, secure, mountain-like reality in everything you've been taught. God is real. God is active. God is unstoppable. God sent his angel. God struck Zechariah dumb. God made the barren Elizabeth and the Virgin Mary conceive with our God nothing is impossible. And I agree with Dr. Piper. God loves to put his glorious sovereignty on display by keeping his promises when sinful humans can see no way out and see no way for God to come through. He did it in Luke chapter 1 in the birth of a baby boy named John. By the way, John would lose his life in faithful service and obedience for his God. And he did it again in Luke chapter 2 in the birth of a baby boy named Jesus who would also give his life but not at the hands of a wicked king for what would appear to be no good end but for unfaithful sinners as he honored his father and provided salvation for the world. Yes, the birth of John and Jesus are similar as were their lives. They're also very different, as the Gospels make clear. John was great, but Jesus was greater. John was the forerunner, but Jesus is the Savior. John was a witness, but Jesus is the Word. John was very important, but Jesus is supremely preeminent. John was a faithful servant to the world, but Jesus is the Savior of the world. And one was great, but he paved the way for the one who is indeed the greatest. And this is God's story of the promise of the coming of the greatest man born of woman who would ever live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story, one that I had not looked at as intently as I have in recent days. And Lord, I just stand back in amazement at your goodness and your grace in blessing uh, an old, faithful a uh, priest and a, a woman advanced in years who had loved you, served you, and Lord, at the same time, must have felt, what is God doing? Why will he not give us a child? Why will he not bless us with a baby? And yet, Lord, you brought a baby into the womb of Elizabeth at exactly the right place and exactly the right time because he was the promised forerunner to the Savior of the world, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, there are many great people out there in the world and many great people in the Bible, but I think we probably ought to give a little bit more attention than many times we do to a man named John the Baptist because your son, our Savior, said of those born of woman, not a greater one has ever been born than John the Baptist. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of John the Baptist, but, Lord, we worship you for the gift of your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.